Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. That's the text in front of us this morning. The title of the message is Agony in Gethsemane. Agony in Gethsemane. The text in front of us this morning allows us to see into or to peer into, at least in part, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, this God-man. Scholars and commentators have used the word hypostatic union to try to describe what it means that God became a man. That Jesus Christ was a hundred percent man, yet a hundred percent God, simultaneously, at the same time, with no compromise on either side. But our text this morning allows us to peer into the humanity, in particular, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the depths of His emotion as He absolutely struggles in agony at the imminent reality of the looming cross. And here in our text, we see the sinless, spotless Passover lamb being made sin for us and bearing our sin on the cross to accomplish our redemption. I mean, the very holiness that hates sin is now going to be made sin and suffer punishment for undeserving sinners. The hour foreordained by God the Father the Son would be crushed under the weight of His relentless wrath has now come. Everything that Jesus has done to this point, every step He's taken, every village that He has gone into, every miracle, every word that He has preached, everything that Jesus has done to this point has led us to this dark garden called Gethsemane, just hours hours before the cross. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I know that you've just gotten settled. But if you have the ability, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's Word. We believe that God's Word is inerrant, that it's sufficient, that it's powerful, and that it's authoritative. And so we just stand in reverence of God's revealed Word to us. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, and these are the words that he pens. And they, that's Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer 
is at hand. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three things that I want you to note this morning would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. Number one is this. Jesus was not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. We need to be very clear about that. Jesus was not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. He was a savior about to endure divine wrath. Let me direct your attention back to verses 32 through 34. Look there at your Bible. Jesus and his disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him three of his disciples. They were Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So you remain here and watch. Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room following their celebration of the Passover together. And under the veil of night... Uh, probably lit only by moonlight, they passed through the eastern gate of Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a secluded, enclosed garden that was right at the base or right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It was a very familiar place to Jesus and his disciples. Matter of fact, John in John chapter 18 tells us that Jesus and the disciples gathered there often. It was a place they frequented together. It's interesting to note that the word Gethsemane in Aramaic actually means oil press, the place of the oil press. So here you have this little enclosed, probably a little stone wall, enclosing a small garden right at the foot of the Mount of Olives where the olives would have been brought to be pressed so that the valuable olive oil contained therein could be harvested. But I think there is great significance in the fact that this is where Jesus met just hours before his crucifixion, literally in the place called the oil press. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself would soon be crushed. Jesus Christ himself would soon be poured out. The priceless, matchless blood of our Savior would stream down Calvary's cross as he was crushed under the weight of God's wrath towards sin. Have you ever noticed that the events of the Bible, by the way, begin in a garden and they wind up in a garden? But what took place in those two gardens couldn't have been more distinctly different. In Eden, the first Adam was tempted by a vision of being like God and in an act of disobedience, he fell. Genesis chapter 3. But in Gethsemane, on the other hand, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was tempted by a vision of sidestepping the cross, but in an act of obedience, he conquered. He conquered. He was victorious. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness by the Lord Jesus Christ leads to justification and life for all men. That is, all men who are found in Christ. That's not all men without exception. All men who are found in Christ, not being found in Adam, having a righteousness of their own, but having been found in Jesus Christ by abiding faith in Him. Mark writes that Jesus was greatly distressed, greatly distressed. 
He uses the word thambeo here. Uh, It has the idea of to be alarmed. Jesus was alarmed here. He was greatly distressed. It's interesting that Mark used this exact same word just a handful of chapters back in Mark chapter 10 to speak about the way the disciples reacted when they saw Jesus' resolute face fixed like flint toward Jerusalem. The disciples were thambeo. They were amazed. They were amazed. Here translated, greatly distressed. Now Jesus himself feels the alarm and feels deeply conflicted as he directly faces the struggle of being exposed to the crushing weight of God's settled opposition towards sin. You ever notice that the the Gospels in particular don't speak a whole lot about the emotion of Jesus. They don't speak a lot about how Jesus felt. And even fewer times does Jesus himself speak about how he feels. But Jesus doesn't withhold the anguish of his heart here in verse 34. Jesus tells his disciples, look at your Bible there, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Perilupos is the word there, very sorrowful. It's a compound word. You have the the little preposition there, peri, it means around. Lupos means grief. Jesus was literally surrounded by or enveloped by grief here in our text. The triumphant tone of spirit with which Jesus assured his disciples just previous that he had overcome the world. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Well, that tone changed now as this small band marched toward Gethsemane. When they reached the garden, a deep gloom, unlike anything they had previously witnessed, was laid upon Jesus. You understand when Jesus says, my soul is deeply distressed. It's not uncommon for a person to want someone to be with them when they are burdened by a difficult trial. And Jesus, though he was the theanthropic man, theos God, anthropos man, theanthropic, though he was the God man, 100% God, 100% man in the same individual, Jesus was no different. In his humanity, he longed in this moment of trial for some of his closest followers to be close to him, to be near to him. Being perfectly human, Jesus desired companionship as he faced the hours leading up to the cross. And so what did he do? Jesus selects Peter, James, and John. These were the same three men that had accompanied him to the house of Jairus when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, and the same three men that accompanied Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus told these three men to remain here and watch. It's presumable that the rest of the disciples were left just a little farther back. Jesus takes uh, James, Peter, and John. He brings them probably to the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells them to wait where he then disappears into the veil of darkness and prays. Remain here and watch, Jesus said. These men were to watch Jesus as he prayed in agony. Greater than watching him, though, it wasn't just a show. They were to watch for him. In other words, they were to watch out for him. Why? Because Judas is already on the loose, is he not? Judas is already separated from the disciples. It was Jesus and the eleven 
uh, that, that fled, or that left, rather, under the veil of darkness, through the Kidron Valley, and headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is on the loose. Judas is already going to get the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, all those who hate Jesus, in order that he might betray him. And so Jesus tells his three closest followers, remain here and watch. Jesus wanted to, pre- to prevent a premature arrest. But it's interesting to note, to note that these three men in this hour, they were not as strong as they once boldly declared. Right, I mean, it was Peter who said, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. I'll cross the the greatest ocean. I'll climb the highest mountain. Whatever it takes, I'm there with you. You'll never die. Far be it from you. I'm with you. But here in this moment, here in this hour, at the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, along with James and John, sleep. They're not as strong as they had once boldly declared. They were ready to die for Jesus, but they could not stay awake for Jesus. Friends, it's important for us to know that Jesus was no coward about to face Roman soldiers. He was a savior about to endure divine wrath. Write this down secondly. Jesus wasn't a victim of God's hostility towards sin. Jesus was not a victim. We need to be very, very clear about that. The Lord Jesus Christ was not a victim of God's hostility towards sin. Rather, he was a submissive servant unto death. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Jesus was voluntarily crucified. It was Jesus himself that said, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. Not you or you or you or you or you can take it from me. I lay it down on my own. Jesus was a submissive servant to death, not a victim Is God hostile towards sin? You bet your bottom dollar he is. God hates sin. As a matter of fact, the prophet Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to even look on evil. But Jesus isn't a victim here. He's a willing, submissive servant. Look at verses 35 and 36 there in your Bible. And going a little further, he, Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed. Prayed what? We prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke tells us that Jesus was literally a stone's throw away from his disciples there in the garden. The darkness likely made Jesus invisible to the three, but through the stillness of the the night, they surely would have heard Jesus as he prayed. I mean, just being a stone's throw away. Though they probably could not see Jesus under the veil of darkness, they likely heard Jesus as he called out to the Father in prayer. Friends, can you imagine that sound? Can you imagine the sound as Jesus Christ cried out to the Father. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 tells us this. He writes, In the days of his flesh, speaking about Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. 
Jesus was noted as having prayed with loud cries and tears. Can you imagine what these fellows heard? In the stillness of the night, the Son of Man wept in agony. Luke, who was the physician amongst the disciples, tells us that Jesus was in such agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hematidrosis. It's a rare but a real condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands can rupture, causing them to, to ooze blood under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Jesus is in absolute agony here in the garden. The Bible doesn't tell us that Satan was present like the Bible tells us that Satan was present in the first garden. But if Satan was present in the temptation of Jesus early in Matthew, you better believe that he's present at least in temptation in this garden just hours before Jesus' crucifixion. The extreme physical and emotional stress of Jesus we can hardly fathom. I mean, Jesus wasn't weak and unstable. What Jesus felt was the burden of a world worth of sin. Three things Jesus declares here in his prayer. I want you to note, first of all, Jesus says, all things are possible for you. It's verse 36a. All things are possible for you. In these words, Jesus recognizes the omnipotence of God. That God is all-powerful. Our God is in heaven and he does what? Whatever he pleases, the psalmist tells us. God is omnipotent. I think about the old children's song, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God can't do. Right? And that's certainly true. That's certainly true. But this doesn't mean that God can do all things arbitrarily. God does nothing arbitrarily. God does everything in accordance with his nature and his purposes. Jesus knows that because he's God in the flesh. And so Jesus declares there in prayer, all things are possible for you. The divine will, just, I'm going to give you kind of a compact sentence here, but I, I want you to get it in your mind. The divine will, God's will, his prerogative, what, what God desires to come to pass and what he wills to come to pass, that is his will, God's divine will, which is the expression of divine righteousness and love. Just means that what God does, he does as an expression of righteousness and love. Everything God does is an expression of his righteousness and love. But God's divine will limits the exercise of his divine power. It's important that we know that. God's will puts limitations on his own exercise of divine power. In other words, all things are possible for God, but God does not do all things that it is possible for him to do. Jesus is clearly acknowledging that in his prayer. All things are possible for you. It would be a good thing for us to remember too in times of great trial and distress, all things, God, are possible for you. But just because all things are possible for you does not mean that you will do all things that you can do. 
You will do all things that you will to do. You will do all things that bring you pleasure to do. You will do all things that bring you glory to do. Secondly, Jesus' request here, he says, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Mark tells us that Jesus prays. And then in parentheses here, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him and that the cup might be removed from him. And so the question I have, maybe the question you have is, what do the hour in verse 35 and what do the cup in verse 36 refer to? What do they refer to? Was Jesus praying that he might be spared from the bloody death of the cross? Is that what Jesus is asking for here? God, just spare me from the bloody death of the cross. I would submit to you that that's not primary on Jesus' list here. Jesus knew from the beginning that he would be betrayed and crucified at the hands of sinful men. As a matter of fact, multiple times in Mark's gospel already he has declared that. Jesus knew that. He knew from day one what he was headed for. He knew as he preached that he would rise again on the third day. And so then what is it that has Jesus sorrowful even to death in the garden? Well, I would submit to you that the hour and the cup are representative not of death itself, but rather what Jesus' death involved. You tracking with me here? Give me one of these or one of these. Okay, the cup and the hour are not necessarily representative of the physical suffering of Jesus, but rather what Jesus' death would involve for him, what it meant for him. You see, the cup of the cross is not primarily physical suffering. It's predominantly spiritual suffering. What causes Jesus such anguish here is not the prospect of what is about to happen to him physically, but rather the prospect of what is getting ready to happen to him spiritually. Jesus wasn't wasn't just getting ready to die and so he was in agony over the physical death. Jesus was getting ready to become a propitiation for sin. He was getting ready to become an atonement for sin. A sacrifice suitable for sin. That's what has Jesus in agony in the garden. In the Old Testament, the cup was a metaphor for God's wrath. Matter of fact, in Psalm 75, Asaph pens these words. He says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Likewise, Jeremiah likewise wrote these words, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because the sword which I am sending among them. The same imagery of the cup of wrath is continued or carried into the New Testament, specifically in Revelation chapter 14, where John speaks of the judgment coming to those who worship the beast. He says, for they will drink the wine of God's wrath poured in full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is 
This is what has Jesus in agony in the garden. It's not Roman soldiers. It's not imprisonment. It's not being stretched across wooden beams and nailed there. It's not primarily about being hung, mocked. This is the king of the Jews. As a public spectacle. But what has Jesus in great distress, even to the point of death, is this cup and this hour. When Jesus went to the cross, the full cup of God's wrath due our sin was poured out upon him, the sinless Savior instead. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when Paul says God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb without defect. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was a sense of the enormous load of human guilt an unutterable weight of our sins and transgressions which would be laid upon him that had Jesus in agony in the garden. There were at least two things that Jesus sinlessly shrunk from in that hour. First of all, we've already mentioned here, and that was to be made sin. Jesus shrunk in his humanity from the reality of being made sin, to be charged by the high court of heaven with the guilt of human sin. From that, the Holy Son of God drew back with all the infinite hatred of sin that He was. Secondly, the agony of being separated from fellowship with His Father. The fellowship that the Father and the Son enjoyed, friends, let me remind you, had no beginning. From eternity past, days without ending, the Father and the Son, perfect intimacy, perfect fellowship, perfect unity, perfect oneness. But this hour would bring separation between the Father and the Son. That loss of fellowship meant infinite suffering. That's exactly what would take place between about 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. on the cross. You see, at the cross, God expressed His full judgment upon sin. At the cross, God expressed His full righteous indignation and justice towards sin. But at the same time on the cross, God Himself endured His full judgment against sin. There is no greater news for sinners like me and like you. God is just. And he demands holiness and righteousness. And because we don't live lives of holiness and righteousness without perfection, there is judgment and condemnation, and it is just and due to us. But that same God who has a settled opposition towards sin hung on Calvary's cross and endured the opposition that he himself has toward our sin, there's no greater news. There's no greater news. Third, Jesus utters these words, not what I will, but what you will. On the one hand, Jesus recoiled at the thought of being made sin and being separated from fellowship with the Father, but on the other hand, He counted the cost and He declared, not what I will, but what you will. 
Again, we see a striking contrast between the first garden and the second garden. In the first garden, Adam declared, what I will, not what you will. This treasonous rebellion opened the floodgate of sin and it ejected man out of the paradise of God. But in the second garden, the second Adam cried out, not what I will, but rather what you will. Jesus' submission and obedience made access to another tree of life possible. You catch that? Adam and Eve were ejected from paradise. They were ejected from the garden. There stood a, an angel of the Lord with a flashing sword that kept them away from the tree of life. But here Jesus in another garden, thousands of years later, would be obedient and would give us access to another tree of life and he hung on it. J.C. Ryle notes, we can imagine no higher degree of perfection than that which is here set before us, speaking about what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, to take patiently whatever God sends, to like nothing but what God likes, to wish nothing but what God approves, to prefer pain if it pleases God to send it, to forgo ease if God does not think fit to bestow it, to lie passive under God's hand, and to know that His will is perfect. This is the highest standard at which we can aim. And of this, our Lord's conduct in Gethsemane is a perfect pattern. Not my will, but your will be done. Notice that Jesus didn't get the answer that he wanted in his humanity. Jesus didn't get the answer that he wanted in his flesh, in his humanity. The Father did not bend his sovereign prerogative when Jesus said, if it is possible, let this hour and this cup pass from me. It wasn't the will of the Father to remove the hour or the cup. The answer to Jesus' request that the hour and the cup would pass was met with a divine no. Though He would be later, in this moment of crushing sorrow, Jesus wasn't left alone. Luke again tells us that there appeared to Him an angel from heaven to strengthen Him. Let me ask you this, friend. God ever told you no? Has God ever told you no? How did you respond? Has He ever declined to answer the request of your heart in the affirmative? Jesus' prayer in the garden sounds a whole lot like another prayer to me. And it was a prayer that Paul uttered in 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul said, I asked, I begged, I pleaded that the Lord would remove this thorn from my flesh. As a matter of fact, I, I pleaded three times that God would remove this thorn. But God said no. Why? To keep me from becoming conceited so that I might see the surpassing greatness of His revelation. God said no. What did He say though? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. How did Paul respond to that? He said, okay, then I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that all eyes and all glory might be set upon you. God ever told you no? Let me remind you, friends, that when God says no, his grace is still sufficient. His grace is still sufficient for you. Sometimes God does not remove the hour. Sometimes God does not remove the cup. Sometimes God does not remove the thorns, but even still, his grace is sufficient. When God's will differs from your own, submit to him and trust in his sovereign grace. We see that here in the Lord Jesus. Not what I will, but what you will. Though I don't understand, I will trust and obey. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I will trust and obey. Number three, write this down. Friends, I need to remind you that Jesus loves you enough to remind you that you aren't as strong as you think you are. Jesus loves me enough. He loves you enough to remind us that we are not as strong as we think we are. Look at your Bible there again. Look at verses 37 through the end of the chapter, or through the end of our text, rather, 37 through 42. And he, Jesus, came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Which, by the way, he knew. <laughs> Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he, Jesus, went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough, Jesus said. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Three times Jesus exits the Garden of Gethsemane to find his disciples sleeping at their post. This is a startling reminder for each one of us that we are not as strong as we think we are. Peter, James, and John stand as a painful reminder that in our flesh we are weaker than we think. These fellows are sleeping when they should have been watching and praying. Even though they were just warned a short time prior that danger was at hand and that their faith was likely to fail, they instead slept. Though they had just come from the table, the Passover table with Jesus, they slept. Never was there a more striking proof that the best of men are but yet men. And that so long as saints are in the flesh... They are weak and frail. Every single one of us are. We're weak and we're frail. We're still responsible, but we're weak and frail. Friends, let us be on guard against the slothful, indolent, lazy spirit that resides in a lot of our nation and our world's Christianity. It's natural to us all. It's natural to us all especially in the matter of our prayer life. The solemn counsel with which Jesus addressed his disciples should ring often in our own ears. That counsel was watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This should be the Christian's daily motto from the time of his conversion until the hour of our death. Watch and pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. Paul said it this way, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but instead to think about yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of grace that God has given you. We all at times think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Every Christian brings together a double nature that is a ready spirit and a flesh that is weak. These two stand in stark contrast to each other. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote to the Galatians these words. He said, For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other. Friends, let me remind you that sin and Satan will always find willing helpers in your heart. Sin will always find a willing helper in your heart and in my heart. The seeds of every sin under the sun remain there and all those seeds need to grow is to be given water, time, and attention. If we don't crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, they will bring us to shame. Friends, we must watch and pray for until Jesus comes, we reside on the enemy's ground. Life is war. The Christian life is war. The moment that we forget that, we will certainly become a casualty. Not of the ultimate war, saved, held secure in the hand, the redeeming, saving, blood-spilled hand of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we will win, we will lose the war today. We'll lose the battle at hand today with sin. The way to fight is on our knees. It's important that we watch and pray. Watching without praying is self-confidence and conceit, but praying without watching is just enthusiasm and fanaticism. The man and the woman who knows their own weakness will watch and pray. Watch and pray. I was thinking in my office this week about the tragedy of prayerlessness. Nothing communicates a proud and arrogant heart so much as prayerlessness does. A lack of prayer communicates this. God, I got this thing under control. If I need you, I'll let you know. I can do it. I can handle this. I got it. I'm good. Wrong. Wrong. Remember John 15, 5? I am divine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things, not little things, nothing. I think we fail to pray for a few reasons. This is absolutely not a comprehensive list, but let me just give you a few of my own thoughts here. I think we fail to pray as we ought because we have everything we need and most of the things we want. We have everything that we need and most of the things that we want. You know what this is the breeding ground for? Pride. Pride. We just don't see our need. In our lack of nothing, we look at our lives and, and we can begin to believe the lie that we're self-sufficient. I don't really need a whole lot. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? There he was walking on the roof of the royal palace and he said, Is this not great Babylon? 
which I have made with my own hands, by my own mighty power, as a royal residence for my glory and my majesty. I mean, I can just see him kind of you know, up there looking over his kingdom. Is this not my land? Have I not acquired it all by myself? Having everything, Nebuchadnezzar saw his need for nothing. But what happened? God humbled him, did he not? Do you know how many times in Scripture we are called to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God? Let me remind you, and this stands as a solemn reminder to myself as well, that as you read through Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, when God does the humbling, it's never pretty. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because when I step in and do the humbling, and I will, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. We have everything that we need and most of the things we want. Nebuchadnezzar goes on and repents there afterward. Secondly, prayer's hard, right? If it were easy, more Christians would be doing it. Prayer is hard. But if we just say that prayer is hard, it makes it sound like the problem rests in the difficulty of prayer. The real problem, and I seek again for myself, is that we lack the discipline that prayer requires. That's the real problem. Which leads me to my third thought. We have everything we need and most of the things we want. Prayer is hard. Why else do we not pray as we ought? Well, I think because we're too easily distracted. We're too easily distracted. I mean, I can discipline myself to watch an hour of TV, not a lick of problem. Not a lick of problem. I can burn minute after minute after minute looking at Facebook. I can spend hours looking at shiny little things on the internet that I either do not need or cannot afford. I have no problem with those things. I can do all those things without distraction. You can do all those things without problem. Do you get the picture here? The world and all of its uh, comfort and glitz and glamour and fun and fashion and wealth and entertainment and pleasure is absolutely rocking us to sleep. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. The result of this distracted world that we live in is that we become desensitized, desensitized to our need for a life of constant prayer. We need to wake up. There's a war going on. Let me close this morning by just saying a few brief words about the relentless tug of temptation. The relentless tug of temptation. Friends, we cannot wait until the hour of temptation to try and figure out how we're going to deal with it. You can't wait until the moment of temptation. You heard me say before, and I'll say it again, if you want to win in the moment of temptation, you must plan your obedience in advance. You cannot wait until the moment of temptation to decide what you're going to do. You're not as strong. I'm not as strong as we think we are. If we wait until the hour of temptation to try to figure out how we're going to deal with it, that's like trying to figure out how you're going to get out of a burning building that has no evacuation plan. It's foolish. It's foolish. That leads to chaos, and it usually ends in tragedy. We can't fly by the seat of our pants and overcome temptation when it comes. 
Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray quite literally in the present tense imperative. Keep watching. Don't stop watching. Continue watching. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. Continue praying. Do it without ceasing. Keep on watching. How often does God tell us this? We have three enemies, do we not? Three primary enemies clawing after our soul. That's our own flesh. It's the God-hating world and it's the vicious devil who roars around like a lion and would love to destroy us. Friends, Satan is not going to put signs and flashing lights along the side of the road for miles and miles and miles so that you know that if you keep on driving, you will fall off the cliff. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't set up barricades and warnings and flashing lights and signs so that you know you're about to careen to your own destruction. He removes all those things and lets you just comfortably cruise on down the road. Then he comes along and blindsides you at that intersection when you have no idea what's coming. And if we think that we can withstand temptation at that point, we are greatly deceived. Greatly deceived. We need an action plan. What am I going to do when I get there? How am I going to respond? How will I keep my heart pure and my mind pure in this situation? Friends, that's not legalism. That's pure wisdom. That's wisdom. There's a fine line between having an action plan and crossing the line and becoming overconfident in the fail-safeness of our plan. We don't trust in our plan. We don't trust in chariots or horses or anything else. Our trust is in the Lord. But I can promise you that if you wait until the critical hour to decide how you are going to deal with temptation, you're setting yourself up for failure. Be alert, be ready, be vigilant, be on guard, be on your toes, be aware, be in the Word, be growing, be following Christ closely, and have someone in your life that knows you inside and out. It's foolishness not to. We don't like that. We don't like to be exposed. We don't like people in our personal space, and so we kind of you know, keep people at arm's length and what's going on between here and here. We don't ever let anybody know, I'm guilty of this. With a capital G, I'm guilty of it, but it's foolishness. The gospel tells you that you have nothing to prove. Yes, you're a failure. Yes, you're a great sinner. We all are. You're responsible, but the gospel declares that you're free in Christ. Therefore, I can let people in between here and here. I don't have to hold people at arm's length. We have got to have somebody or some bodies in our life that know us from the inside out. Keep watching. And then secondly, keep praying. Keep praying. In fact, one way to stay on the alert in your life is to be sure that you have a habit of praying. Walk closely with God. Abide with Him. Annie Hawks penned the words to this well-loved hymn, I need thee every hour. I love it. She says, I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. Temptations lose their power. R.A. Torrey once said, the reason why so many fail in battle is because they wait until the hour of battle. The reason others succeed is because they've gained their victory on their knees long before the battle ever came. And so he says, anticipate your battles and fight them on your knees before temptation comes. And then, he says, you'll have the victory. 
Friends, sin will take you farther than you're willing to go, keep you longer than you're willing to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Let me close with this statement here. Joni Erickson Tata, in her book, When God Weeps, which is phenomenal, by the way. Oh, Joni Erickson Tata has a deep-rooted, a deep-seated trust in the sovereignty of God. She writes this, 11 men who would later change world history, some even accustomed to working all night on their fishing boats, could not keep awake for this very scene. Yet just 60 feet away, their eternal destinies were being fought for, except for the heaving of those shoulders that bore the weight of the world. Nothing could be seen in that shadowy spot where the Son of God groaned in the night. But the bleachers of heaven were filled to capacity that night, and all hell strained its neck to see the spectacle in that lonely acre. The father gazed down and gave his sober nod. The son stared back and bowed with acceptance. A line of men and torches snaked down from the city, from Jerusalem, through the blackness, toward the garden. God in the flesh saw them coming through tear-blurred eyes that refused to blink. He said, get up. It is time to go, he quietly told the eleven. The torches arrived, the sheep fled, the shepherds stood, the hurricane struck, and victory was won. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Such good stuff here. Uh, challenge us, convict us, change us, temper us, uh, search us and see if there is any unrighteousness in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.